says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim and 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went on to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so tempted to bring to you half-baked sacrifices. We are so tempted to try to honor you with half-hearted obedience. We're so tempted to, to take and to try to pacify you in some way with the bare minimum that we can get by with. But Lord, this morning what I pray is that you would intervene in our lives and intervene in our complacency. And that Lord, you would shake us with your glory so that our hearts are glad to give you the entirety of who we are and all that we have. Pray, Lord, that though we are not a perfect people, though we struggle and are tired and, and deal with all of the infirmities that sinners struggle with, I pray that, God, we would be a people that are defined by our wholehearted offering of ourselves to you, by our wholehearted obedience, not so that you will love us, but because you love us. Lord, what we want this morning is an encounter with the living God. And I believe with all of my heart that you are pleased to let us have as your people just that through your word and through the Holy Spirit. We offer these things to you now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There are certain moments in your lives that end up defining the rest of your lives, right? They... they they set you on a path or on a trajectory 
that seems almost irreversible. You can think back, probably most days in your life are pretty forgettable. Most of the things that you do are fairly ordinary and fairly mundane. And so much of life is waking up and doing the thing and going to bed, right? Loving your family. But there are a handful of moments that stand out from the rest. A handful of moments that are are really the opportunities of a lifetime. And it's your decisions in those moments. It's your reactions and responses in those moments that really set and establish the pathway by which you'll go for the rest of your life. I've always kind of been interested and fascinated by discovery stories. One in particular, and I actually heard this while I was pumping gas by those annoying little TVs they have on the gas stations now, right? Like you can't just sit there like a normal person anymore. You got to have somebody talking to you while you pump your gas. But one of them was pretty interesting. It was at the Chevron by my house, if you want to go and and, and give it a listen. Um, And it talks about the story of Toni Braxton. That one day as a teenage girl, she's in Ohio. And she goes to the same gas station that she always goes to, and she begins to pump gas. And she looks up, and the, the attendant to the gas station is standing there uncomfortably close and kind of lingering, right? Like that, that feeling that you have when you kind of know somebody's watching you. And she said, I've heard her talking in interviews, she said she was kind of weirded out by it. And she said, can I help you? And he said, are you the one that can sing? And she said, I, I guess so. He, she had sang in the choir she, at her church. She had sang at a couple of places around town, but by no means was any big deal. It ended up that the man who was working as a gas station attendant was by the name of William Petaway, and he was early on his way to becoming a producer. And Tony Braxton was discovered pumping gas up in Maryland at her hometown and has become one of the largest grossing stars of all female vocalists in history. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. Every day she probably, how, she said she was getting, she had, her dad had given her $3 and she was going to get $2 worth of gas and buy her something to eat. How often do you think she did that? Until that one day. That one day, that defining moment came and, and her response in that moment and her ability to, to step up to the plate in that moment defined the whole future for her. But you know, probably a lot of you can think back to moments and you don't think back to moments that, are, that were good defining moments. You think back to moments of regret. You think about, back to moments in which you carry shame and you carry guilt forward from, from all of the hardship that you've faced as a result. You, you, you think back to a decision that you made, an opportunity of a lifetime perhaps presented itself to you, but your response in that, in that moment was, was less. And you've relived that moment a thousand different times thinking, if I could just go back and have that conversation one more time, if I could just go back and unmake the decision that I made, if I could just go back and unsay the words that I said. And so for you, that, that moment of a lifetime has been has been one of regret, one of, one of disappointment, one of, one of discouragement. I think about that when I think about Saul. Saul was looking for his daddy's donkeys when God anointed him to be the king. He had no particular qualifications. He was not seeking it. He was not a political man. He was, he was not a particularly apt man or a particularly wise man. He was obviously a particularly handsome guy. We, we know that. He was a really tall dude. 
But outside of that, he really didn't have a whole lot of qualifications that lined him up for be, to be the king, and he wasn't pursuing it. God came and found him. And it was the opportunity of a lifetime that he could be the instrument through whom God used to lead his people and to help his people and to protect his people and to, and to be a blessing to all other nations. But what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is really a picture of ourselves so often. A picture of ourselves that we take those opportunities of a lifetime that come across so rarely within the providence of God and we take those opportunities and we twist them by and we corrupt them according to our own nature so that ultimately they become moments of regret. So what I want us to say, I think, I think the way we're supposed to understand 1 Samuel 15 and 16 is that there's supposed to be parallel accounts in some way. That what we see in chapter 15 is we see how, how we operate. And what we see in chapter 16 is we see how God operates. And so there's supposed to be a contrast in our minds between chapter 15 and chapter 16, this, this contrast of how we operate with how, how God operates. And so that's what we're going to look at over the next two weeks. This week we're going to look at chapter 15 and how we operate. And then next Sunday we're going to go and we're going to see the anointing of, of David, the moment that's long been anticipated throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to see how, how God operates in that moment. So how do we operate? The first thing I want you to see is that we listen to the wrong voices. We listen to the wrong voices. If you come to our house, 90% of the problems that go down at the hell house are the result of poor listening. One time I had a dream. I had a dream and I went off to a nice little magical place called Listening Land. And in listening land, all of the children, they listened and they obeyed perfectly all of my instructions. And I listened and obeyed all of my wife's instructions. And you know where listening land is a happy place. It's a very happy place. It's just not a real place, is it? It's just not a real place. Like sometimes I just want to look at my children and think, do you just enjoy pain coming into your life? Do, do you just enjoy hardship coming into your life? All you have to do is just listen, man. Listen, I'm protecting you, yo. I'm trying to help you, yo. I'm in your corner here. I want life to go well for you. I'm here for you. You just won't listen. Y'all, how often do you think the Lord looks down upon his children and thinks, I'm for you. I'm with you. I, I, I want you to thrive. I want you to do well. I want you to have a satisfying life and a joyful life. I want you to have all that I've intended, all that I've designed for you to enjoy. If you would just listen. If you would just listen. If Adam and Eve had just listened. If we would just listen. In fact, listening forms a major theme throughout the, the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel. Now, I, I, I kind of want to kind of sh show you some insider baseball here because I want, I want you to be able to study the Bible for yourself. And so when I'm looking for themes in passages, in chapters, there's some, there's some questions that I ask. And, and two of them help us here to identify why listening is uh, a, a theme in 1 Samuel 15. The first thing I want to ask is what is being talked about first? What's being brought up first? So very often in the Bible, it's presented to you first what God really wants you to get out of this. Like what, what's really supposed to be intended. Look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. Or chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen. Listen to the words of the Lord. So what comes up first? But not just what comes up first. What comes up most often? What comes up most often? That when the Lord, he understands that we're a bit dense down here. That we don't live in listening land. That we have, we have sin that plugs our ears. And we have an unwillingness to hear what God is actually trying to say to us. And so God is kind enough to repeat himself to us throughout his word. And so I want to know, not just what is said first, but what is said most often. If you read chapter 15 in its entirety, listen comes up six times. Listen comes up six times. In fact, voice of the Lord or word of the Lord comes up five times, which is obviously implying that we should be listening to the Lord, right? And so what he's trying to drive home here is the reality of the nature of how Saul is supposed to rule as the king. See, Saul was supposed to be an incarnation of the word of God to his people. That his ability to rule his people was to be directly in proportion to his ability and, and, and uh, willingness to listen to the Lord. That Saul wasn't so much a ruler as he was a steward. He didn't get to go around willy-nilly and just do everything he wanted to do, however he wanted to do it. No, the Lord, through his prophet and through his word, was going to tell Saul what to do. And by telling Saul what to do, he was telling Saul how Israel would prosper. He was telling Saul how he would deliver them and how he would protect them. He was telling Saul how his glory would ultimately be fully enjoyed by the people of God. All Saul had to do was listen to what God did, what God said, and then do it. And he was, in that way, being a living, breathing incarnation of the Word of God in front of his people, leading his people by exactly what God said. So in other words, there, there's a sense in which Saul was supposed to be a type of, of a vassal king or a puppet king, may make more sense to us today. He, he was supposed to be really in submission to the greater king. That even though there was a man that was sitting on the throne of Egypt or Israel, God was really still the ruler of Israel. God was really the one who was in charge of everything that was going on. He just needed his king to listen. And so God gives a very clear instruction. He says, I want you to go, and the, the Hebrew word for what he's describing is harem. Or it, it's, it's, in English, it's, it's a ban. He puts the Amalekites under a ban because the Amalekites were a particular threat to Israel and had brought great hardship to Israel. And so it's not something that happens very often in the Bible. In fact, it happens incredibly rarely. But it's essentially where Israel was supposed to go and they were supposed to annihilate a people because that people had so turned against the Lord and had so rebelled and turned toward evil that the Lord said it was actually safer for his people. And it it was actually to his ultimate glory that his justice and for his kindness to Israel that that people be annihilated from the earth. And so it was a type of offering unto the Lord to go and to say all that was there, all that is here because it has rebelled against you, because they do not love you, because they are far from you, because their hearts are hardened and because in fact they are great threats to your people, I am going to eliminate them from the earth. And so the instructions are clear. So, so we see what, what Saul's task is. His task is to listen and to incarnate the word. And we see what the, what the command that is given is to go. And it's to put all of the Amalekites under the ban, under the harem, that, that they would be wiped from the earth. And so, of course, of course, what did Saul do? He obeyed, right? All he had to do was listen. All he had to do was go. God was going to deliver them. God was going to wipe them. All he had, so Are we living in a listening land? No. Nah. 
No. The first thing that it says, look at what it says in verse 8. And he, Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and, of course, the best. Of course, the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy. Now, would not is an important word there. It's different than could not, right? Do you see this? That, that it was within the ability of Saul because of what God had done, that it wasn't that he couldn't do it. God had delivered the Amalekites to him. God had delivered Agag over to him. It was certainly within his ability because of the kindness of God, because of the provision of God, but he simply would not do it. He would not do it. What do we see here? What we see is that Saul thought he knew a better way. Saul thought he knew a better way. He would take what is best. Oh, sorry. He would take what is best. He would take what is good. And then he would take it and he would be able to go and offer that now as a sacrifice to the Lord. It was as if he was saying, look, Lord, I I know what you wanted me to do. I know that you said through Samuel that you wanted all the stuff to be wiped out. I know that you said you wanted the king wiped out and all the best and all the property. and all. I, I know what you said, but I have an idea. I have an idea. I have a better idea. Would you just let me inform you on what the right thing to do actually is? That in other words, Saul was listening. He was just listening to himself and not the Lord. Do you hear me? Saul was listening. He was just doing what was wise in his own eyes. He was just doing what made sense. See, God had spoken clearly to Saul, but Saul just didn't think it made sense. Saul, in other words, was of a different opinion than God was. How often is that true of us? How often is that true of us? That we know It's not unclear to us what God has said about family and what God has said about marriage and what God has said about sex and what God has said about the way we treat one another. We know what God has said about generosity, about kindness toward the poor. We know what God has said about missions. We we know what God has said. It is not unclear to us, but the thing is, is so often when it comes to obedience, it just doesn't make sense to us. And so we have the audacity, like Saul, to look back to heaven and say, God, I have a better idea. I have a better idea for my life. I wonder where in your life you have a different opinion on things than God. Because let me tell you, if God never corrects any of your opinions, if God never changes your mind on anything, if God never interrupts any of your thoughts, you don't have a God. You don't have a God. You have self-worship. You have self-worship. You have a God that serves you, not you serving the living God. No, it's not about what you think is best. It's not whether or not you know a better way. I wonder, are you listening to your own voice this morning? But it wasn't just that he's listening to his own voice. Notice he was also listening to a louder voice. He was listening to a louder voice. Look at verse 20, 21, and then we're going to skip down and see 24 because it comes up again. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Well, that, that's an audacious claim, right? I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. We're going to circle back to this at the end. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted to the Amalekites to destruction. But, 
But the people took of the spoil and sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Okay, so the people, I want you to hold that in your mind. Saul, verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed. This is later on, this is what happened. But this is the excuse that he gives. The commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people. Because I feared the people. There's a sense in which Saul's being compared to Adam here. That just like Adam failed in the garden, Saul fails as the original king of Israel. Because what is the first thing that, that Adam says when the Lord comes and confronts him in his his sin. You gave me this woman. Why'd you give me this woman? I was doing just fine. Things was going to be fine. You and I were going to be tight. I was going to obey you. I was going to honor you. And you gave me this doggone woman here in my life. And now she's messed everything up. She done gone and and, and just wrecked the house, right? What does Saul say? I was going to be a good king, Lord. I was going to honor you. I was going to do all the things that you would have for me to do. I was, I, was going to, I was going to obey you perfectly. I wanted to wipe everybody out, but it's those people that you put me in charge of. It's those people that you gave me. It's those doggone people that come in here in our nation and messed everything up. Right? You see, the Lord spoke clearly, but the people spoke loudly. Saul wasn't just listening to his own voice, he was listening to a louder voice. God will come, and sometimes he, do, he speaks in a small, still small voice, doesn't he? Sometimes God comes, and it's not with a thunderclap, and it's not with a, 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 a skywriting airplane to tell you exactly what you should do. Sometimes it's just in his word. His word that's hidden in your heart. His word that, that lays there on your coffee table completely neglected. But then you have Facebook, and Facebook's telling you what your family should be. And you have friends at work, and your friends at work are telling you what you ought to do about your marriage. And you turn on television, and the television tells you all the things that you ought to have and all the ways that you ought to go. That you, you have the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is not unclear. That is, that is a cop-out that we use to say that we don't understand the word of the Lord. We know and understand what God is saying. The truth is, everybody else is just louder. Listen to me. You can't listen to the Lord and to the crowd at the same time. You can't listen to the Lord and to the crowd at the same time. For years, we've told our kids and we've told our teenagers, don't give in to peer pressure and don't do it just because everybody else is doing it. And don't do it just because it seems normal or right in that moment. But brothers and sisters, it is time for us to take our own advice. It is time for us to take our own advice. We have to decide in whose hands are we placing our happiness? In whom are we finding our identity? Who do we think actually has our best interests at heart? Do we think it's the people on Facebook? Do we think it's all of the blogs that are written? Do we think it's the crowd that eats lunch with us at work? Do we think it's the the people at school? Do we think it's all of of the, the talking heads and the pundits on television? Or do we believe it's the Lord? Because we can't obey both. 
We can't listen to both. And let me assure you, in a world with social media and and devices that follow us everywhere and notifications that are, are clanging all the night long, the voice of the crowd is going to be longer but are louder, but the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, it's clear. It's clear. You have to decide. So there's a refrain that shows up over and over throughout chapter 15 that's meant to catch our attention. It's a jarring, it's one of the most painful statements, I think, that's found in all of the scripture. Look at verse 11. This is God talking, not Samuel. God, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul over Israel. The word regret, in your Bible, it may even be translated as repent. The Lord repented. Think about that. Think about the imagery there. Think about the power of those words. That God, speaking through his prophet, he says, I repent that I have made Saul king. I regret that I have made... What in the world does that even mean, by the way? It doesn't mean that God didn't see what was coming. It doesn't mean that God wasn't in control. It doesn't mean that suddenly Saul stepped outside of the providence of God or stepped outside of the sovereignty of God. What it means is it's God using human language to describe his willingness to live in real relationship with sinners. And the way that a dad regrets disciplining his child. The, the, the way that a father may, may give a new truck or a used truck, hopefully, to his 16-year-old son only to have his son go and break his trust and disobey him with it, takes it back. He repents. He, he turns that truck around. He says, give me the keys, right? That's what's being described here. You see, if you listen to yourself or if you listen to the louder voices, Those are two different pathways to the same destination, and it's the destination of regret. It's the destination of regret. And this morning, I want you to examine your heart and examine your life and examine the decisions that you're making and the places that you're going and the things that you're doing and the reasons and motives behind all of them. And I want you to be honest with yourself before the Lord because the Lord already knows to whom are you listening To whom are you listening? Are you following your own opinions? Are you following the clamoring of the crowd? Or have you given yourself wholly over to the kindness of the Lord? Have you given yourself wholly over to the wisdom of the Lord? Yeah, the the first way we see how we operate is that we listen to the wrong voices. Secondly, I want you to see that we pride ourselves on half measures. We pride ourselves on half measures. Verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, and I want you to remember that that Samuel, he's been crying all night long, it said. So Samuel is exhausted mentally, emotionally. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So you have this emotional, 
distressed, angry, it says, version of Samuel the prophet, and he's got to go, and he's going to confront Saul. And in this painful picture, you actually get what I think is like a glimpse of humor a little bit, a, a, a little bit of, of like, you're, you're just to kind of show just how obtuse and just totally out of touch human beings and sinners can be with what God has instructed us to be. It reminds me, the picture here, it reminds me of Gracie, okay? I remember one time that I, Megan had told her that she had to clean up a room or whatever, and I became like room inspector guy which is really a privilege of parenthood, to be room inspector guy and not room cleaner guy. That's a big step up in, in life, a big promotion, right? And so I go into Gracie's room, and Gracie's sitting there, and she's kicking it, man. Like, she's kicked back, watching a movie, eating some popcorn. I mean, she's got it like she likes it, you know? And she, I walk in, and she smiles, that beautiful little smile, and she says, clean my room up, Dad. Did a good job, didn't I? And I look. And the bed is basically lifted up off the ground with all of the stuff that she has packed in there. You open the closet door and you feel like you're going to be smothered in an avalanche that comes. And she's just sitting there, man, proud as a peach. Like, just couldn't be any better off. Life is as good as it gets, man. That's the picture that I have of Saul here. Here's Saul, the prophet come, and the prophet has come to confront him in his disobedience. And of course, Samuel doesn't know about the conversation that, or Saul doesn't know about the conversation that Samuel and the Lord have already had with one another. He doesn't know that Samuel has insider knowledge. And so there's, there's Saul, and he has literally built a statue for himself. He's built a statue for himself. And in the shadows of his own statue, Samuel shows up and Saul says, Obeyed the Lord, did a real good job. I know you're proud of me. Check out the statue. Just wanted to celebrate what the Lord did, you know. I know it's of me, but the Lord worked through me. I'm an instrument of the Lord, right? Like, here, here's my statue. And what we're supposed to realize is though we already know that Saul has only half obeyed and taken half measures, he's really proud of it. He's really proud of himself. He really thinks that he's accomplished something. He really thinks that, that God's going to reach down his divine hand through his prophet and pat him on the back and say, well done, chap. I hope, can't wait till next time. It's like the dad, and I, I wouldn't know anything about this myself, but you have the dad who grills hot dogs one night out of 30, right? Mom has, has cooked and slaved in that kitchen 29 nights out of the month. But dad, dad, he comes and he throws up on that grill and he puts some frozen hot dogs down on it and the family is fed. And what is he? He walks through that house like he deserves a parade. Right? Chest poked out like, look at what I did. The world owes me something. Isn't that the picture of Samuel here? Isn't that a picture of who we are? That we go and we offer God half measures and half-baked sacrifices. We halfway obey the Lord. And we think, we think the Lord ought to be proud of us. We think the Lord ought to be pleased with us. We think that God is going to look down and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But the picture is stark. The picture is stark. And it's that partial obedience is full disobedience. Partial obedience is full disobedience. Look at verse 19. Why then, this is Samuel's talk, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was 
evil in the sight of the Lord. And Samuel said, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Do you see the picture? Here, here's Saul saying, look at all I've done. Look at why I deserve it. I have done these things. I have obeyed the Lord. And Samuel comes and says, no, 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 no. You stopped short. Agag is still here. I can hear in the background all of the sheep bleeding. I can hear the sounds of the oxen in the background. You're not very good at listening, Saul, but I'm listening right now. And what I hear is I hear in the backdrop your own disobedience. You see the picture? 90% obedience is 100% rebellion. Why is that? Because 90% obedience reveals a heart that doesn't love God with all of its mind, with all of its heart, and with all of its strength. It reveals a heart that wants a shortcut in obedience. It reveals a heart that wants to be able to give God the bare minimum of what he requires so that he'll be pacified, that we might go on and live our lives the best way that we know how. It reveals a heart that wants to stop short of full devotion unto the Lord to be able to say, God, I think ultimately I know a happier path. I know a more peaceful path. I know a more joyful path. Lord, I know the way that I should go. And so I'm gonna give you what you require. I'm gonna try to pacify you. I'm gonna go to church if that's what I've gotta do. Or I'm gonna read my Bible every now and then if that's what I've gotta do. Or, or I'll, shoot, I'll work in the nursery even once a quarter if, the, if that's what'll do it. But what I need is, I need ultimately for you to let me live my life. It's the revelation of a rebellious heart in your own spirit that you just want to be able to say, I did the church thing, I did the God thing. God, go back to your room and let me live my life. And so there's a picture that comes at the end that's intended to paint for us what radical obedience actually looks like. It says that, verse 33, and Samuel said, as you're, he, he calls for him to bring King Agag out of, out of prison. And, he's, and this is Samuel with Agag standing in front of him. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It's a different kind of preacher, isn't it? But there's a picture that's being painted for us. And the picture is, is what God actually demands obedience look like. The radical nature of what true, God-honoring, devout obedience looks like that pleases the Lord. A, an obedience without half measures. And so you can imagine that you have there, you have Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, holding a sword, he and the sword dripping in blood. And it is a gory picture of what God had expected from Saul. And yet Saul had stopped short. But it's a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of another bloody sacrifice that teaches to us the essence of obedience unto the Lord. That Christ, God's very own son, would come because God's justice demanded 
perfect obedience from all people that we would be as holy as he is holy so that we might enter into his presence and live with him and enjoy him and know him forever. And none of us were capable of that. And so he put a call on his life, on the life of his son, to go and to die in my place and in your place and there, arms spread, his body was beaten and bludgeoned, his beard was plucked from his face and there he lied, bleeding. Why? Obedience. Obedience. Father, if there is any way that this, pa- this cup should pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And the kind of obedience that God is looking for in my life and in your life is obedience that goes in the way of the cross. Obedience that says, here is all of my life. Here is all of who you've called me to be. This is all of what you've called for me to do. And regardless if it makes sense, regardless if I'm of a different opinion, regardless if there are other voices that are louder, regardless if I think a different way is better, here is my life and I will offer it entirely because I am taking up my cross and I'm following after you. We pride ourselves on half measures, but God calls for all heart, all life, all mind. Brings me to the final, the final uh, way that we operate, and that is that we disguise disobedience with religion. We disguise disobedience with religion. Look at verse 20 and 21. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone on mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Do you know what we see here? We see here... we. Three, four different words that are religious terms, right? Religious lingo. And then at the bottom, we see in sacrifice, we see a religious ceremony. And this is so important, y'all. Don't miss this. Let me tell you what sinners like to do. We like to take our sin. We like to take our disobedience We like to take our unfaithfulness and we like to bury it in religious words and cover it with religious ceremonies. In other words, we like to take all of the things that God has told us to do, that we refuse to do, all of the half measures in our lives, all of the the stopping short of, of full devotion, we like to take all of that and we like to figure out a way to baptize it so that it doesn't look and sound quite so bad. It's exactly what Saul's doing. It's exactly what Saul's doing. Saul knows he hasn't obeyed the Lord. Saul knows that he's spared the king when he wasn't supposed to spare the king. And it wasn't an act of mercy that he spared the king. He spared the king so he could parade him through town and have everybody talk about how great a winner Saul is. He knows he hasn't done that. He knows that he he spared all of the, the spoils, not so that he could sacrifice it to the Lord, but so that he could have bounty, so that he could have the spoils of battle like all the other nations have had. No, he uses words like sacrifice and devotion and obedience as a way to make it sound better than it really is. To make it sound like he has given his full heart to the Lord when in fact he has stopped short. 
to make it sound like he loves the Lord and he is committed to the Lord, when in fact he is committed to the spread of his own fame and to the spread of his own name, not the fame in the name of the Lord. Oh, here in the South, we're experts at this, aren't we? We're experts at camouflaging our disobedience by burying it in religious language and covering it with religious ceremonies. We think, yeah, I sleep with my boyfriend, but it's because I love him. I love him. Because we're in love, and so we, we take it and we make it love, right? We, we think about, uh, yeah, I, I'm not really faithful to the church like I ought to be. I, I know all of that. But I've really found, I've really found that I, I, I best interact with God alone on the lake or alone in my living room or over a cup of coffee. And so what do we, we take unfaithfulness to the church and make it sound like a personal spiritual awakening. We, we take pornography. I, I've heard this more times than I can count. A man is addicted to pornography. He's obsessed over pornography. It's completely degrading and objectifying his wife, making her feel like she doesn't merit, measure up. And you know what he'll say? He'll say, look, it's a harmless way for me to save my marriage. A harmless way for me to save my marriage. We find ways to spiritualize, to disguise, to camouflage, to bury in religious, spiritual lingo what we know. What we know is anti-God. What we know God hates. So you see, brothers and sisters, when it comes to our lives, what the Lord is looking for in us is the same thing he was looking for in Israel. Samuel, verse 22, And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Does the Lord give one hill of beans about your religious words and all of your ceremonies and all of your rituals? And as, as, as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is greater than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Do you hear it? That God, what God wants from you is not, not another religious ceremony. He's not trying to get, let you make up for all the bad things that you've done and cover it up with more religious words. God wants from you is your heart. What he wants from you is your heart. What he wants for you is for you to love him. What, what he wants for you is to stop making excuses and stop justifying all the things that you ultimately want to do and say, God, I love you so much that I trust your way is better than my way when my way makes more sense to me. What he wants from you is to say, here is my life and all that I have. And I trust that you have a better plan for it than I do. You see, you can't make up for the wrong things that you did by doing enough religious things in response. See, it's human nature for us to say, I've gotten myself into this mess and I've got to try to figure a way to get myself out of this mess. 
But all of that is, is you declaring your independence from God, your lack of need from God. It is a declaration that you really do believe that you're strong enough, and you really do believe that you're able enough, and you really do believe that you're good enough, that somehow, if it hadn't caught you on the wrong day, if you'd not been with the wrong people, if you'd not just made the wrong decision, that somehow you could have taken control of your life and made it all okay, and so now, now you can fix it. Just tell me how many Hail Marys I need to say. Just tell me what I need to do so that I can absolve it. Listen, praying with your boyfriend isn't going to make up with you sleeping with him. You coming to church and and throwing a few more dollars in the plate doesn't make up for you cheating on your taxes or, or cutting time at work. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, if you operate on that system, you will suffocate yourself. Because you can't manage, you can't out-tilt the scale with the bad, by doing more good things than you've done bad things. The bad things don't go away just because you did a good thing with a bad motive. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Don't step up. Don't work harder. Don't try to make up for the bad. Bow down. Bow down. Just be still. Just start listening. Just get on your face. Don't muster up more strength and more courage and more more obedience and more this and more of that. Bow down. Look at what it says in verse 30. Because I think this is where many of us are. This is Saul responding, finally exasperated and at the end of himself. He says, then he said, Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me. Now, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. It's not true repentance. See, there was a time in which Saul could have obeyed and the presence of the Lord would have remained with Saul. And then throughout chapter 15, it is open-ended. Saul can repent at any time. And I'm convinced if Saul had repented, the presence of the Lord would have stayed upon Saul. But Saul doesn't obey. Saul doesn't repent. Saul says, let me save face before the elders. How many of us, how many of us are just trying to save face? Maybe you're here this morning and you're here because you're trying to save face with your wife. Maybe you're trying to save face with your boss. Maybe you're trying to save face before God himself. But you're here because you're like, I've done so many bad things this week. Well, I, I'm going to do something good to try to save face. Aren't you tired of saving face? Aren't you tired of trying to plaster a smile on a broken face? Aren't you try, tired of trying to cover up all the scars with enough makeup and, 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 and positive energy? Man, that doesn't work. Stop saving face. But you see, the invitation of Jesus is not clean yourself up. It's not balance out the bad with good. It's not go find a soup kitchen and and come to church more and then come. The invitation of Jesus is come as you are. Come as you are. Stop trying to make up and bow down. Let me make up for it. Let me overcome what's broken in you. Let me make you new. Let me change your heart. Let me cancel your debt. You're not able, friend. You're not able. But you don't have to be. Because Jesus has come. God has made a way. 
And you know what? It's the opportunity of a lifetime. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.